liberal philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration, to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was 13 years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Tonon. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house, I chanced to find a volume on the works of Cornelius Agrippa. I opened it with apathy. The, the theory which he attempts to demonstrate and the wonderful facts which he relates soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and, bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. My father looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, Ugh, Cornelius Agrippa, my dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. If Instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical. Under such circumstances, I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside and have contented my imagination, warmed as it was, by returning with greater ardor to my former studies. It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin. But the cursory glance my father had taken of my volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Greetings. I am Reverend Eric, and you are listening to part four of this podcast's deep dive into Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. 
If you're just joining us, or even if you feel lost and you would like to catch up with the earlier episodes in the series, you can find them on the podcast's website at arnamancy.com slash Agrippa. We started off with book one, but we're going to be skipping a big chunk of it in our deep dive for a couple of reasons. First, most of the early chapters deal with a combination of Pliny's natural history and astrological correspondences. While this is a fascinating topic, we covered Pliny's contributions to occult philosophy in the second episode of the series, and astrological correspondences are handled in great depths in any number of other works. If you're an occultist or a student of the occult, you've no doubt come across them. Instead, we will be skipping ahead to later in Book 1 to explore Agrippa's description and explanation of light and the senses, in particular the imagination. If you want to get a jump start on these topics, I would advise you to read Book 1, Chapters 49, 60, and 61. To understand how Agrippa believed that the senses work, we have to begin by examining his ideas on light. And in order to look at how this occult light works, we need to understand a little bit more about Agrippa's worldview. Three Books of Occult Philosophy was written from a geocentric worldview. In other words, in Agrippa's mind, and in nearly all of the most learned minds of Agrippa's time, the earth sat at the center of the cosmos, and everything, including the sun, orbited it. The stargazers and cosmologists of Agrippa's time had yet to be introduced to the concept of a heliocentric cosmos, or even of a cosmos with suns beyond our own. If you will recall from the first episode of this series, Nicholas Copernicus was born in 1473, just 13 years before Agrippa, and died in 1543, about eight years after him. Like Agrippa, Copernicus's world-changing book was not published until right around the time of his death, meaning that Agrippa never would have had a chance to see it. Heliocentrism, in fact, took a very long time to take hold Though it collected some influential proponents, most of them were not even born during Agrippa's lifetime, and it would take almost a century for Galileo's astronomical observations and Kepler's mathematical proofs to give heliocentrism the foothold it needed to be accepted as truth. So hold on, you might be saying. If Agrippa didn't know that the Earth orbited the Sun, what exactly did his cosmos look like? Early 16th century Europe lived and believed in a Ptolemaic world. What does that mean? It means that the material world, where we live, existed inside the nested shells of the created cosmos. The outer shell, the outermost shell of the cosmos, held all of the fixed stars. It was basically the limit of their finite universe. Inside this shell of fixed stars were seven other crystalline, transparent, 
unbreakable spheres nested inside each other like matryoshka dolls. Each of these nested spheres was home to the brilliant glowing ember of one of the wandering stars, what we call the planets. In fact, our word planet comes from an old Greek word for wandering. These seven planets were arranged in a fixed order called the Chaldean order. From the outermost to the innermost sphere, it went like this. The largest, slowest, and heaviest was Saturn. Inside Saturn was Jupiter. Inside the Jupiter sphere was the Mars sphere. Inside that, the Sun. Inside the Sun, Venus, and then Mercury, and then the Moon. Finally, within the sphere of the Moon existed the material world, the world we live in, Earth. Okay, back to light. In particular, divine light. That's what we're going to be most interested in right now. In chapter 49, Agrippa explains that divine light begins beyond the sphere of the fixed stars and descends through them. It trickles down through each of the celestial lights, meaning the seven planets in their spheres. And at each planet, the celestial intelligence of that planet determines how the divine light is received and then emitted. Agrippa explains that each of the planets absorbs and emits celestial light of specific colors. I think this is a pretty interesting part of the chapter, actually, since the colors don't really match up very well with the planetary colors used by many modern practitioners. Uh, don't worry, though. We will encounter plenty of planetary colors throughout occult philosophy, so you'll have lots to choose from. The colors of the planets are as follows. Saturn handles light that is black, clear, earthy, leaden, and dark. I know there's a lot of contradictions in there, but you have to remember that these lights have to make it all the way down. Jupiter handles light that is sapphire, green, purple, and gold. Mars handles light that is red, glowing, fiery, and, like Jupiter, purple. The sun also handles purple, along with gold, yellow, and bright light. Finally, the spheres of Venus, Mercury, and the moon share in the light that they handle. White light, ruddy light, light that is slightly yellow or purple, and also light that is various. This is an interesting collection of colors. Purple recurs throughout. It's difficult to put it together, at least in my head, into a comprehensive sort of color theory or something of that nature. Um, so I think this is kind of worth paying attention to. It is sort of interesting because it breaks the kind of uh, stereotypical mold uh, or the stereotype of planetary colors. Anyhow. Once this celestial light has passed through each of the planetary spheres, it reaches the material world. At this point, 
The light is still not visible light, necessarily, but some sort of divine celestial radiance that has been filtered through the divinity and celestial power of the spheres. When it reaches the material world, it enters the human soul, and in particular, it passes into the imagination. From the imagination, it sounds like it is projected out of the eyes, maybe like a flashlight, and then received again by the eyes as visible light, which allows us to see. Now, obviously, that is not how eyeballs work, and we know that now. But modern scientific theories about light weren't developed until the 17th century. Even Agrippa doesn't seem to totally buy the flashlight eyeballs theory, because way back in Book 1, Chapter 7, he wrote, Vision is fiery for it cannot perceive without fire and light. Whereas in chapter 49, he seems to indicate that vision is sort of like a flashlight and that the reason it doesn't work in the dark is because it's dark and doesn't work as well. It doesn't work. It's not a theory that holds together. In fact, I think that we can understand now Dr. Victor Frankenstein's frustration at Agrippa's outdated science, when he said, If, instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, and that a modern system of science had been introduced which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical— in light of this, sorry, it is tempting to discard Agrippa's theory of light completely, like one is forced to do with much of the so-called natural philosophy in Book 1. However, before we do that, before we discard it entirely, I think it's really, really important for us to examine what occult philosophy has to say about the other senses— Later on in this episode, I will put forth an argument that we can pull a deeper and maybe more metaphorical meaning out of this concept of the divine light that allows it to be useful to the modern practitioner. Now that we've wetted our whistle with divine light, it's time to make sense of the senses. We're going to have to skip around a tiny bit in book one to cover this topic. Let's start by going to chapter 61. In this chapter, Agrippa reiterates that our physical bodies are made by proportions of the four elements, fire, air, earth, and water. In creating our bodies, the Creator imbued us with a number of senses, inner and outer, and some of these, the inner, are more noble than others, but even the outer senses have a certain level of nobility or purity. The outer senses are outer because they are part of our material body, though actually some of them are quite internal. Both smell and taste, after all, are happening inside your body and not outside. Agrippa ascribes us five outer senses and explains that each is related to specific elements. The eyes which give us sight, Agrippa calls the purest sense and associates them with both fire and light. Ears, which give us hearing, are associated with air. 
nostrils, which give us smelling, are a mixture somewhere between air and water. Taste, a denser sense, is associated with water. And finally, touch, which is diffused throughout the body, is associated with earth. According to Agrippa's scheme, the greater a distance at which a sense can operate, the more pure it is. This makes sight the purest of the senses, while taste and touch are the least pure. Exploring Agrippa's weird and outdated ideas about the way the physical world works might be fun, but it can get in the way of trying to find important, valuable gems hidden in his work. When it comes to looking at the senses, it is the description of the inner senses in occult philosophy that I think truly holds the treasure we are seeking in this episode. Chapter 61 goes on to describe the four inner senses that belong to the mind and soul. They are the common sense, which is responsible for collecting impressions and information from the exterior or outer senses in the form of images, which is very important. The second of the inner senses is the imaginative power, which retains images from the common sense and passes them along to the third inner sense, which is fantasy and the power of thought. Fantasy accepts images, perceives and judges the reason and nature of images, and passes them along to the fourth inner sense. The fourth inner sense, and you should definitely pay attention to this one, is memory. Memory protects and stores images, and also has the power to distinguish, connect, perceive, and judge them. Finally, this is where we get to the good stuff. The inner senses are all about the ingestion and management of images that are created by the outer senses. But even more importantly, they are all active senses. It is very important to note that memory is included here as a sense. It brings to mind this bit from the 4th century Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, who wrote, Observe these facts. Memory follows upon attention. Those who have memorized much by dint of their training in the use of leading indications, suggestive words and the like, reach the point of being easily able to retain without such aid. Must we not conclude that the basis of memory is the soul power brought to full strength? Sensation and memory, then, are not passivity, but power. Okay, so if we look at the inner senses as active senses, perhaps we can start to see why flashlight eyes are so important to occult philosophy. They take the purest of our outer senses, sight, and turn it into an active sense. This could be an important piece to the puzzle. All right, but hold on, we have to pause. Because this is not all that Agrippa has to say about the inner senses. Oh no, there is more. First, fantasy, the third inner sense, is broken down into five categories. Wandering, arranging, pursuits, flights, and passions to action. 
These are all methods of dealing with images. Remember that fantasy and the power of thought are responsible for accepting images, perceiving and judging images, in particular the reason and nature of those images. Thoughts, which are also part of fantasy, are also broken down into six types. Intellectual understanding, virtues, discipline, reasoning, deliberation, and choice. I think we can agree that those are all very important parts of thinking, but what's so fascinating here is that they are done with images. Fantasy and its task of accepting images turns out to be the key of this entire system. It is the inner sense that seems to forge the bridge between the corporeal world and the soul. Agrippa tells us that the intellect, part of fantasy and thought, receives images from all. In fact, he goes further and explains that the intellectual part of fantasy is that bridge. He writes, Therefore, nature set up this order of powers in men, so that through the exterior or outer senses, we might recognize corporeal things, and by the interior senses, the likeness of bodies, as well as those things abstracted by the mind or intellect, which are not bodies and not like them. This is part of the underlying theory of images in the soul that led scholar Juan Culliano to propose his theory of the phantasmal apparatus or imaginal faculty in his book, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. Culliano wrote, Renaissance culture was a culture of the phantasmic. It lent tremendous weight to the phantasms evoked by inner sense and had developed to the utmost the human faculty of working actively upon and with these phantasms. We are now very close to finding a way to redeem occult philosophy's approach to divine light. Why are these inner senses so dang important? To take a look at one example, we need to back up a few pages and take a look at Book 1, Chapter 60. In this chapter, Agrippa discusses at length the concept of a melancholic humor, a mysterious substance under the celestial influence of Saturn that, when kindled and burning, stirs up frenzy and brings us to knowledge and divination. We know, thanks to Eric Perdue's work, that Agrippa borrowed this idea from the writings of Marsilio Ficino, and scholars such as Francis Yates have written about the importance of this particular view of the melancholic humor in Renaissance magic. Melancholy was usually seen as the saddest and most hateful of the four humors, with plenty of unpleasant characteristics. But during the Renaissance, it was reformed into the humor of great thinkers, prophets, and religious seers. The so-called gifts of Saturn became a sign of genius and greatness, which instead brought one closer to the divine. Agrippa describes this process in chapter 60, when he writes that command of the melancholic humor can bring celestial spirits into the body. 
He lists three categories of celestial spirits that can enter and influence us depending on what type of apprehension exists in our soul. First, inferior spirits can grant us wonderful manual skills such as painting or building. Next, middle spirits grant knowledge and wisdom, and they turn people into philosophers, physicians, or public speakers. And then finally, sublime spirits teach divine secrets, such as divine law, angelic orders, and the salvation of souls. And how does an individual take command of their melancholic humor to allow these powers to enter? Agrippa says that it happens when there is nothing crossing the bounds of the body and chains of the members is entirely transferred to one of three inner senses, the imagination, the reason, or the mind. At the end of chapter 60, in fact, Agrippa explains that the outer senses cloud the understanding. It is interesting to me that this would happen if the light used by sight is indeed divine light filtered through our imagination and projected outward. I believe that the key to redeeming the divine light and the inner senses of occult philosophy is to treat the divine light entirely different than the portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that we know as light today. While in the modern world, sight, the purest of the outer senses, is usually seen as a receptive, passive sense, that does not need to diminish how we approach and work with our inner senses. Your common sense, imaginative power, fantasy, and memory are key components of your magical practice, and you will need to begin treating them as active senses in order to work with the magic Agrippa describes in occult philosophy. Of extremely special note is the role of images in the inner senses. They are passed up and down the hierarchy from common sense to memory and back again. Of particular note, as I said earlier, is fantasy, which has the ability to create images or phantasms of its own, as well as receive external images, for instance, from spirits or the senses. I believe we could argue that this happens through the divine light that filters down into the soul. Memory also deserves a special note. If you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I and many of my guests are big fans of the art of memory and its applications in magic and divination. Perhaps by taking a closer look at memory in occult philosophy, you can start to see why. Let me expand on this by sharing this bit on the connection between fantasy and memory from Patrick Dunn's 2020 book, The Practical Art of Divine Magic. The basic key of memory is this. We remember phantasms to which we have an erotic link, and we do not remember things that are not linked to a phantasm by an erotic connection. Now, by phantasm, I mean sensory image. And by erotic, I mean emotive, not necessarily sexual. I use these particular terms rather than more contemporary psychological terminology because they are evocative of the way in which the training of memory creates a synthema out of the mind. 
Now, we will be returning to the art of memory and Agrippa's influence on its Renaissance practice in a future episode. If you are feeling impatient, however, I encourage you to check the links in the show notes, which includes links to a lot of materials on the art of memory from the Arnomancy website. I would also like to note that the chapters we discussed in this episode are not the only chapters about the imagination. In fact, for homework, I would encourage you to pay particular attention to chapters 62 through 68, which also deal with the imagination, passions, and binding. In our next episode, we will be taking a look at the most dreaded of all subjects in occult philosophy, mathematics. So get ready. Thanks to Charlie Claire Burgess, a.k.a. The Word Witch, for their superb portrayal of Dr. Victor Frankenstein, with lines from both Mary Shelley's novel and the 1931 film based on the novel. Thanks also to Andrew Fort, who played Sonata Number 48 in D minor by Domenico Scarlatti on the piano. As always, for a full list of credits, please see the show notes. This series of episodes about occult philosophy will probably last until summer. My Patreon supporters will be receiving each episode a week before the rest of the world, along with bonus materials such as full interviews, a glimpse at works in progress, and the opportunity to suggest further topics for this Agrippa deep dive. If you enjoy these episodes and want to help support their development, you can help out by sharing this podcast with a friend. Let your weird wizard buddies and witch pals know that we are on this journey and invite them to join us. And if you want to contribute monetarily, you can go to arnamancy.com support and find any number of options. Until next time, keep reading books, keep being weird, and keep doing magic. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.